Let's bow together. Father, what a privilege it is again to be together and have uh, the place and the time uh, to be able to listen to your word. And I pray as we as we come to your word that you would prepare our hearts, that we would be those who receive it uh, as you intended, and that you'd use your spirit to convict us, uh, to correct us, uh, to train us, to teach us, that we would be those who are adequate, uh, having been fully equipped for every good work. Lord, bless your word as it goes out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come into a relationship with the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that we receive the forgiveness of sins that uh, were brought about by what he did on the cross. We are justified by faith in Jesus. And not only do we come to faith in Jesus Christ to enter into a relationship with him, we also walk by faith. Uh, The book of Colossians, Paul writes, As you have received him, so walk in him, we see. Now, Scripture talks about faith. It talks about no faith, uh, dead faith, little faith, growing faith, much faith, full of faith, and great faith. And today, we're going to see the reality that if we walk by faith, there are, for lack of a better term, differing uh, levels of faith. There's differing aspects of faith. Now, the question would be, as we come into our passage today, what does great faith look like? If someone were to say, I have great faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that mean? What would that look like in real time? Well, today we're going to see a passage where the Lord Jesus himself says and declares that someone has great faith. And so let's take a look. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. And we're still in between books here. And so continue to pray for the book that we will study next. Um, Still preparing for that. But in the in-between time, uh, we are uh, sharing different messages as I feel the Lord would have us learn. Things that I need to hear first and then we all need to hear. And so... It's always uh, first I need to hear it and then share it with you all. And so here, we come to Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. And again, we're going to see what great faith looks like. And we're going to see that in the cleansed heart of a Gentile woman. Uh, The book of Matthew is about the Messiah King, Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew is about God the Son who took on human flesh uh, to save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, came to the Jewish people. Those who would name the Lord's name, yet they were in sin, they were in darkness. And Jesus, graciously having the way prepared for him by John the Baptist, uh, called upon the people to repent of their sin, for the kingdom was at hand. He was right in their midst, the king. And Jesus taught and preached the kingdom. We see that in chapters 5 through 7 in the book of Matthew. And he affirmed his person and his teaching with the miraculous, verses eight, chapters 8 and 9 in the book. And then after two years of ministering, uh, it is apparent that the multitudes have rejected Christ, desiring the miracles rather than the salvation that he provides. And Jesus begins to, con- to declare their condemnation and, the unrepentant and, and condemnation upon the unrepentant leaders uh, who set up to try to kill him. And then he began to withdraw himself and teach his disciples. 
Now, Jesus, having withdrawn from the multitudes, more actively discipling his disciples, uh, after he fed the 5,000, he sent out his uh, disciples in the storm, and he came walking to them on the water. And we see Peter's great faith and little faith, don't we? And then the disciples came to understand, in that sense, that he's truly the Son of God, truly the Son of God. And preceding our passage today, we have a a collision between the religious philosophy that permeated the so-called people of God and the truth that God revealed through his son Jesus in the flesh. And indeed, in the end of chapter 14, uh, in the beginning of chapter 15, we see Jesus unveil the hypocrisy of the Pharisees as they attempted to accuse him, his disciples, of breaking their religious traditions by eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus made it clear that because of their externalism and their traditions, they had invalidated the word of God, the truth of God. You see, they believed it was what they did externally that brought them righteousness, but actually the opposite is true. Righteousness comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And your heart then reveals where uh, you really are at. And Jesus would share to them, look back in chapter 15, verse 17. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? Saying, hey, it's not what you eat that makes you unclean. He's going to talk about what makes you unclean. He says, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those (coughs) defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. These were external these Pharisees were externalists with corrupted hearts and not true faith. And so now I believe we have a deep contrast between the corrupted, unclean hearts of the Pharisees who were externalists, keeping everything clean on the outside, but the cup in the inside was, was dirty with sin, and a Gentile who was considered unclean, but ultimately was clean through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's here we're going to see an unclean Gentile dog with a cleansed heart as we see what great faith uh, looks like. Uh, Matthew 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she is shouting out after us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done to you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. I believe we're going to see today great faith in the person of Jesus Christ uh, is revealed in the context of his word, as we're going to say. We're going to see that it must include a total recognition of one's inability and, and a total recognition of his sufficiency. It is also that which persists, and it's not presumptive and offended, 
and it also responds properly to God's truth. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that. So what does great faith look like? First of all, notice great faith is in the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the word. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. It says he went away from there. Well, where's there? Where did he go away from? Well, we see in the end of chapter 14, he was in the land of Gennesaret. Now, that was a fertile plain on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, south of Capernaum. And now he withdraws from there. And so after feeding the 5,000, we see in John 6 that the Jews were going to force him to be their king. They were going to force him. And he, slept, he slipped out of their midst. Now, these Jews were in unbelief. They wanted Jesus to fit their paradigm, a Jesus who would uh, do what they want him to do, to feed them, to take care of them, take care of the Romans. But they wanted nothing to do with the salvation that came through acknowledging sin and believing in him. And so Jesus withdraws from that. And where did he withdraw to? Our passage says to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Okay? Now, this would be the coastal region of Palestine, where we would call southern Lebanon right now. This is for, formerly an area where the Phoenicians were. It's a Gentile area. The Gentile, some term Gentile simply means non-Jew, non-Jew. And so, uh, because Jesus' ministry was not to the Gentiles, but to the Jews, most likely he withdrew to get away from the crowds. And specifically those crowds who wanted to make him king, but for the wrong reasons. Okay, they wanted the stuff from Jesus, but they didn't want to get saved by Jesus. And so possibly we see that's the case. Actually, and I think Mark chapter 7 reveals that's possibly uh, the case. Turn to Mark chapter 7, and we'll kind of go back and forth between these two. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. He's trying to get away from them for this moment, it appears. He's trying to get away. He withdraws away from the Jews into a Gentile district. And he is trying to get away, it appears. And yet we see here that something happens back in our passage in Matthew. Back in our passage, verse 22, and behold, take a look, Matthew says, behold, uh, I want you to see this, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, before we get into this specifically, I want you to understand uh, how important the timing is here in which Matthew relays this inspired by the Spirit. It's quite important to realize that there is a great contrast, as I've mentioned before. Remember, we have the unbelieving, hypocritical Jews who were concerned about their external ceremonial cleanness rather than their heart uncleanness, and uh, these hypocrites... Uh, would consider then a Gentile, an unclean Gentile dog. And here we're going to see a Gentile who actually has a clean heart in contrast to the Jews who had unclean hearts. There's a big contrast here. And so the Jews who were still in their sins uh, thought they were clean on the outside, but yet they were wicked on the inside. And they believed in their hypocrisy that all non-Jews were unclean. Well, yes, they were, but not, not, not believing non-Jews. 
as we'll see, they were clean because of Jesus. So then Matthew says, look, behold, he wants us to recognize something. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now here we have a woman here. It says that she's a Canaanite woman. That's speaking of a woman from the land of Canaan. Mark says the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. Mark chapter 7, verse 26. She was a Gentile. She was of those that Israel had commanded to utterly destroy because of their wickedness back in that generation when they came in uh, to utterly destroy because of their wickedness. Deuteronomy 20, verse 17. Yet we know they disobeyed and they did not utterly destroy the inhabitants of the land who were wicked at that time. It's the Gentiles of that time in the land that were, that were those Canaanites that were to be destroyed. And so we have one of the offspring of them and this lady is one of them. And so she hears about Jesus. What does she do? Uh, she began crying out. She came from the region. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. We see the request from this lady. And we're going to look more at that in a moment. But what I want to first do is make some observations about this woman's faith, even in the beginning. This is about great faith. We're going to see. Let's make some observations about why the Lord Jesus would say she has great faith. Now, we're going to see it certainly has to do with her request, but there are things that lead up to this which give us great insight into the faith of this lady. Notice she says, O Lord, son of David. This is a Gentile. This is a Gentile woman in a Gentile land saying, O Lord... Son of David. Now the term Lord, Kyrios in Greek, speaks of someone who's an authority, a master or, or, or a Lord. It's used extensively and refers to God to speak of the I Am, the Lord, to speak of deity. The I Am, the Lord is salvation. Yeshua, the Lord is salvation. We have the Hebrew counterpart, Yahweh, uh, which, uh, where we get the, the, the transliterated portion. People have mistransliterated Jehovah in that sense. And the Lord is salvation. You remember, you shall name him Yeshua, or the Lord of salvation, because he will save his people from their sins. And so here, the Gentile women clearly, we're going to see, believe that he was the island. And you say, how can you say that? That he just didn't, wasn't saying it out of respect. Well, we're going to see that she believes that he can heal her daughter. She believes that he can cast out the demon. She has faith in that context. And I believe she does believe he is the Lord because of what she'll say next. She'll talk about the son of David. But even here, uh, she says in verse 28, Lord, help me. Bowing down. Look at that. And bowing down before him, the word pros UK speaks of worshiping when it's in front of God. Uh, she is bowing down. She says, Lord, help me. Help me. You see, she believes that Jesus is the living God, and it is crucial to have the right object of faith. If your object of your faith is not correct, you do not have true, genuine faith. You see, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. And we're going to see he's both Lord and Christ, but he is Lord. You see, you must believe that he is Lord to be saved. You must believe that he's God, that he's the I Am He's not simply a good man who did good things. He is God who became human flesh, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. We need to believe that he is the Lord. 
uh, Romans chapter 10. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Now, it's one thing. There's all kinds of convoluted ideas of lordship and salvation, all that stuff. They get all convoluted when they get all, all categorized and doctorized and doctrinalized. But the reality is, it's just simply having an internal recognition by faith that Jesus is the I Am. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And so we see here, Romans chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we're preaching. He's referring to a portion in Deuteronomy, actually. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You've got to know who he is, and then you've got to believe what he did for you, right? He says, for with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. It's the person of Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction for between Jew and Greek for the what? Same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There is a recognition that Jesus is Lord. He is the I am. He is, he is God who took on human f- flesh. He is the great I am. Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. He's Lord. He is Lord. You know, we see that's the way we receive him. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 5, For Paul says, For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing, he's talking to the Colossians, to see your good discipline and the stability of your, here's the key of this passage, your faith, in Christ, okay? And then he says, As therefore you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. You received him by faith. You believed in who he really was. You've got to have the right object of faith. And she does. She does. She does. The, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Pharisees did not see him in this manner, right? They wanted to stone him when he was making himself out to be God, equal to God, when he, when he was calling himself the I Am. They wanted to kill him. But she calls him Lord. And then notice what else she calls him. She says, Son of David. Now we have more information. These are things that you could only understand from the revealed word of God about the, the Christ, the son of David, as we're going to see, is revealed in the word of God concerning Christ, concerning Jesus. And there's no way to know about that apart from revelation from the word of God. She is going to exhibit a belief in what God says about Jesus in his presence. She says, son of David. But why would she call him son of David? Well, first of all, we need to realize that God made a promise to David, a covenant with David, that in his throne, his kingdom would be established forever. There would be one in his line who would be king forever and ever. His throne would be established. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. You can just jot this down. I'll read this for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. He's like, I'm going to raise up a descendant. There's going to be a house built. That's Psalm. But then he's going to establish his throne forever, forever. And he goes on, verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. 
we have the same basic statement concerning the, the everlasting covenant made with David on his throne in Psalm 89. Psalm 89. You can turn to Psalm 89. And this is a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. Good guy, by the way. Ethan the Ezraite sings, inspired by the Spirit. He says in Psalm 89, verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. Amen. I hope that's your heart. Amen. That's his saving, uh, gracious, loyal, covenant-keeping love that he brought forth in Jesus. To all generations I will make known thy faithfulness with my mouth. Great is his faithfulness, right? He says, For I have said, Loving kindness will be built up forever in the heavens. Thou shalt establish thy faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build upon your throne to all generations. Selah. The Jews understood that there would be a Messiah that would come in the line of David. Now, they did not acknowledge that Jesus was that Messiah, that he was that son of David who would reign forever. And she says, this Gentile, dirty Gentile dog from the hypocritical Jews' perspective, she says, Lord, son of David. She understands the truth that has been revealed in the word of God concerning David. You see, because, you see, he was the promised Messiah in the line of David, the anointed one, the King of Kings, the Christ. The Christ. And to be saved, you must recognize the truth about this, that he is both Lord and Christ. He is the Lord, but he is also the Messiah who would reign forever and ever and ever. He's the anointed one who had to suffer first for the glories to follow. The Apostle Paul shares with Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel, right? You've got to know that, right? He says, For which I suffer a hardship, even in prison as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. What does Luke say, and then how is, it resp- how is the response when we see here what's going to happen? Uh, in chapter 1 of Luke, when the angel speaks to Mary, chapter 1 of Luke, turn there to Luke chapter 1. Verse 30, and we have the declaration of the angel. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The word of God reveals the truth of God concerning the son of David, who is the Messiah, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 22, we see in the context of this, that uh, this promised Messiah, the anointed one, the king of kings, is both the Lord and Christ. He is the Lord and he is the Christ, the son of David, who would die for your sins. He would reign forever and ever and ever on the throne of David. Acts chapter 2:22. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Uh, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this they were pierced to the heart. They understood what that meant. He is God, he's the I am. He's also the Messiah, the anointed one. He's the Christ. And they were pierced to the heart. He said here, and Peter said to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And he said Peter said to them, Repent 
And let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and, 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 uh, and get baptized because of the forgiveness of sins. That's how you can translate that. And the reality is, he is both Lord and Christ. And so this Gentile has the correct object of faith. You cannot have great faith unless you see Jesus rightly. If you have perverted in your heart Jesus, and believers can, can skew it and become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Yes, we know he's the Lord. Yes, we know. But we start treating him like he's a little gift bag God or whatever it might be, where we try to get stuff from him rather than seeing who he really is. He is the Lord and he is the Christ. He is the son of David. And so then this lady had the right object of faith. And it came from an understanding of the word of God, not her own perception. She believed he was the Lord and the son of David. And that is who she's crying out to. So I want to ask you, what's the object of your faith? Is it the Jesus who is revealed in scripture or is it a Jesus you have made up in your own mind? Talk to a lot of people who say they're Christians and you ask them about their Jesus and man, it's a different Jesus, I tell you. It is not what we see in Scripture. They sound like they're Christians. They say Jesus, but it's something's wrong there. This woman had the right object of faith. So who do you trust? Who have you come to for salvation? The Jesus of the Mormons can't save you. He's not of the Scriptures. That's a false Jesus. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses can't save you. That's a false Jesus. The Jesus that you may have made an idol in your own heart is not is not the Jesus. You changed him to be what you want him to be. That's not the Jesus of Scripture. You see, the only true, one and only true God who took on human flesh is revealed in the Word of God. And we have the Lord, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, the Lord. So you need to have the object right. And sometimes our faith is uh, flawed because we're not focusing on Jesus correctly. We're not seeing him rightly. Which, see, if we see him rightly, then we're going to be, as we'll see here, more humble in our petitions. We're going to think more differently about him, in a sense, because we're seeing him as he really is. And so you've got to get into the Word of God and refresh your heart and mind about who the Lord truly is. And that will bring about some fear and some reverence concerning who he is, because we tend to lose that in the midst of our difficulties that come upon us at times. Okay, now notice great faith includes that, a right object, and that's the core of it, but also it includes a recognition of one's total inability and his total sufficiency. That's really important because we seem to think that we can do stuff. We just kind of ask God to help here and there when, when things go bad or right, whatever it might be. Hey, we've got to be at the point where we have total inability and recognize it, which we do, and recognize it and then trust in him. Look at verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman back in Matthew 15 came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. In the uh, Greek text, there's continual habitual crying out. It's over and over again. Have mercy on me, O son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. What an awful thing. It appears that this might have been a young daughter because Mark speaks of her as a little daughter, chapter 7, verse 25, and uses the word paideon, which speaks of child in verse 30. Uh, it speaks of a young child. 
And having been, she's growing up now, but having been the father of a young girl, you can understand how awful that would be to have a young girl in this situation. And this mother is very, very, uh, is very traumatized in a sense because of what has happened to her daughter, and she's coming to the only one who can help her. Now she says, this small daughter, she is cruelly demon-possessed. Diamonizamai speaks of demon possession. Demon possession. And in our parallel passage in Mark chapter 7, verse 25, uh, Mark says the little girl had an unclean spirit. In verse 30 of Mark chapter 7, the demon was what had departed from her. It says demon, okay? Now I'm not going to get into all the stuff I shared um, many years ago when I taught... Uh, in chapter 8, and you can look that up. We have the recordings. It's on the web. But I shared a lot about demons and a lot about uh, that when we were in chapter 8. And I'm not going to repeat all that. That would take half the message. But one thing that we know from Scripture, we know that demons can and do inhabit the unsaved. And evidently they're held under some wicked control. Now, we never see believers possessed by demons, and I believe because we have the Holy Spirit within us. A demon cannot possess a true believer. Now, we can, we, Satan can, uh, can mess us up a little bit from the outside, right? We're, we're not to give him a place, Ephesians chapter 4. That's to believers, right? With unforgiveness or, or, or anger in that context there. Unforgiveness, Second Corinthians chapter 2. But we cannot be possessed. But non-believers can. They can. And indeed, in chapters 8, 9, and 12, and other passages of Scripture, and that's of Matthew, by the way, uh, we see that the demons, those who can be demon-possessed by one or more demons. Remember the legion of demons uh, in chapter 8, the demon-possessed man. It was a bunch of them, okay? And so then, uh, we see that there were those who were demon-possessed. They were also not in their right minds. The demons were cast out. They were in their right mind. They were not in their right minds beforehand they could be violent they exhibit super strength they had physical ailments they 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 hurt themselves and others um it also came across at times with dumbness and deafness and blindness uh and so we see that we see in scripture that children can be demon possessed this is a scary thing isn't it children can be demon possessed Uh, look at mark chapter 9 mark chapter 9 Mark chapter 9, verse 17. Now, I'm not saying there's a demon behind every illness these days, but uh, our society has, our scientific society has no uh, recognition or understanding of the demonic uh, in the situation with, with kids and things like that. There's stuff going on at times. I'm not saying there's a demon around every corner, but uh, it does, and we do see in Scripture it does happen. Mark chapter 9, verse 17. And one of the crowd answered him, saying, Teacher, I brought you my possessed son, or my, my, my son possessed with the spirit which makes him mute. He understood that, didn't he? Um, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. Some of the kids these days, you go, you wonder, right? You know, some of the, some of the stuff that uh, parents are dabbling in, the demonic stuff in our culture these days, it's pretty bad. It's getting worse, by the way. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered and said to them, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. 
And they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked, and he, speaking of Jesus, asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Pretty scary stuff. From childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him, trying to kill him, right? You see? But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd was was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to... Come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. So my point is children can be possessed. Um, We see that in scripture very clearly in multiple locations, in our location and also here in Mark chapter 9. The reality is that those who have rejected Christ, including children, uh, there is demon possession at times. But as we'll see today, Christ can and will deliver anyone who believes from the domain of darkness. He will deliver anyone. You see, and it's through Christ. And so you kids who are playing around with Christianity, uh, you listen to what your mommy and daddy say, but you don't really believe it, whatever it is. Things are going fine for you. You don't really trust Christ. The reality is there is evil out there. There is evil, and you need a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to trust in him for salvation from your sin. That's what you're saved from, by the way. The consequences, eternal consequences of your sin. And then you can never be demon-possessed at that point, for greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But if you reject Christ and continue your own way, you might find yourself someday in a place you never thought you would ever so back to our passage the woman is in total agony her little daughter is cruelly demon possessed and she goes to the one who can deliver her her, deliver her from that jesus christ and notice her humble yet urgent petition back in our passage have mercy on me O lord son of david my daughter is cruelly possessed later on she'll say in 25 lord help me lord help me the term have mercy on me, uh, Elias, uh, Elias, it speaks of uh, uh, an attitude or emotion that is roused uh, by the affliction of another. And it always carries the sense of action. There's no mercy when it isn't acted upon, by the way. If I have mercy on you and it's not acted, I'm not having real mercy because that's included in the, in the idea. Mercy is compassion or sympathy for the helpless, which is aroused to action which is aroused to action. Mercy is not mercy apart from the action, which arises from the compassion and sympathy. It's actually helping someone who is helpless, and they recognize they're helpless. When you say have mercy, you are, you are at the bottom. You recognize there's nothing you can do to help yourself, and you are asking for someone to help you. You are helpless. Helpless. You know, we've been saved by his great mercy. By his great mercy, we've been born again. We were helpless, and God saved us through Jesus Christ. Through his great mercy, he acted upon 
uh, his compassion for us in our pitiful state of sin. And so then, those who recognize they're absolutely helpless and hopeless are those who cry out for mercy. And that's where you need to be to be saved, by the way. You are hopelessly condemned to eternal punishment for your sin. But Jesus Christ paid the penalty, and if you cry out to him, he will save you. He will have mercy on you. So then, we see here, whether it's someone seeking deliverance for their children from demonic possession, or from being blind, or from whatever it might be, when they cry out for mercy, they're recognizing their total helplessness. Helplessness. And you can't trust Christ apart from recognizing your inadequacy and helplessness to have your sins dealt with. You can't do it. Genuine faith cannot and does not exist in the context of self-sufficiency. She is at the bottom. She is absolutely inadequate to do this. She cannot do this. And she is crying out to him in a totally helpless state. And folks, so what happens at this point? Does Jesus mercifully heal her daughter because he's a merciful God and he is a merciful God? Does he do so? Folks, that's not what happens at this point. Look at our passage. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly being possessed, verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Uh Uh-oh. He's a merciful God. Why not answer? Why not heal her? For the sake of us and those there, those there and us, we're going to see that God acts according to God's will and desire. And that does not contradict his mercifulness or his graciousness. Notice he doesn't respond. He doesn't respond to her. He doesn't say a word to her. And you might say, wow, I've, I've cried out. Haven't you, you cried out according to God's will? You know it's his will and there's no answer. Sometimes there's no answer for a good reason, for a good reason. The reality is here that in the midst of this woman's great grief, Jesus didn't respond right away. You know, sometimes we have a microwave view of God, a fast food view of God. We cry out, we know it's his will, we understand that, and we want the answer right now. We want it right now. But he did not answer her word. So what does he do? What does he do? He does respond to the disciples' request, I believe, revealing uh, that he is functioning according to the revealed will of God, which is to go to Israel first. Look at what happens. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she is shouting out after us. That's what they're doing. This is becoming a scene, Jesus. She's shouting out, Heal heal my daughter, heal my daughter, Lord, son of David, over and over, heal Uh, She's cruelly demon-possessed. She's crying out, and now she's crying out after them. And notice how he answers these disciples. I was, he says, but he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this implies that the disciples were not just saying, send her away. They're implying, heal her and get her out of here. Just do what you've done with everyone else. He healed everyone who came to him. Heal her. Get her out of here, Jesus. Let's get this done. And notice Jesus answers them and says, hey, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He reveals the reality of God's plan. And remember, he had gone to Gentile territory to avoid the crowds, not to minister. He had gone to avoid the crowds. 
And at this point, Jesus reveals to his disciples, as one put it, his messianic promises have an order of development. There's an order to it. And we're going to see that order would be, it is for the Jew first and then the Greek. It's for the Jew first and then the Greek. Now, we need to understand that, that it's extremely important that promises given in the Old Testament have an order in which they're brought forth and fulfilled. And if we don't understand this, we're not going to understand the scriptures. And so then we have, after the initial promise of deliverance of through Eve's seed, one who would crush Satan, Genesis 3, we have a promise of all the nations being blessed through Abraham's seed, which would come through Isaac, Jacob, by the way of the person of Christ, the son of David. And although God made a covenant with Israel, the fruition of their disobedience, which was foreshadowed in Jeremiah 31, revealed that he would bring a new covenant, which would bring the forgiveness of sins. Yet this covenant was with Israel, but the blessings would overflow to the nations, as we see. Because as in Abraham's seed, all the nations would be blessed. But there was an order in which he was to bring this forth, and it was to the Jew first, and then the Gentile. He was to offer the kingdom to Israel first in that sense. Take a look at uh, uh, John chapter 1. Or actually, let's go to Luke. Actually, no, John chapter 1, verse 9. There was a true light which comes into the world and enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own, what? Did not receive him. As many as received him, to them he gave the power, to, to the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name. And he says, who were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Look at uh, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. The Apostle Paul is answering the question, are the Jews out? Are they out of it? Is, are they out of it? Like so many Reformed people say, yeah, they would be. Well, the Scripture is different. Scripture shares the truth. Romans chapter 11, verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? That's Israel, by the way. May it never be, but by their transgression, that's Israel's transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to what? To make them, the Jews, jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch as I then, as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and some of them, and some save some of them, for if their rejection be reconciliated for the world, what will their acceptance be? Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then the Greek. You see, initially Jesus came to his own. And uh, the Jews, uh, he see, the, the Lord God, he loved the world, so loved the world. Yet it was always his plan, not just simply to go to the Jews, but to go to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. We see this very clearly in the book of Acts chapter 15 that salvation would come to the Gentiles and their hearts would be cleansed by faith in Jesus. But there was an order to it. 
There was an order to it. Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, those are Jews, also to us, also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. The salvation process, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, but Jesus came first to the Jews in his plan. In his plan. So he's telling his disciples, I didn't come to minister to Gentiles at this point. I came to minister to Jews. Okay? That's why he's not talking to her. That's why he's not just, when they snap their fingers and say, heal her and get her out of here. That's why he's not responding at this point. And it gives him an opportunity to share the plan of God to them and a lesson concerning faith. So then, we need to rightly divide the word of God. We need to understand the progressive plan of God and how it is laid out in the word of God when we look at different portions and see them and interpret them in the right context. So then, what happens next? Does he reject the woman because it's not God's plan? What happens here? Back to our passage. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, send her away, for he is shouting out after us. Basically, the implication, heal her and get her out of here. Right? But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There we go. That's why I'm not acting in the manner that you think I should act. Okay? And then he says, but she, then the scripture says, but she came and began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. This is great. Uh, this woman, this woman will not quit. This is a good nagging. This is good. She will not quit. God in human flesh is her only hope, and she comes continually, habitually bowing down before him. Now, the term paras UK uh, speaks of showing respect from human to human, but when it is in front of God, it is always translated worship. Worship. And she has already exhibited that she believes he's Lord and the son of David. And so she's bowing down in humility. She is persisting in her requests. And she bowed down before him and said, Lord, help me. Now, there's nothing wrong with long prayers if they're genuine from the heart. But I find more often than not, when we're in trouble before the living God, our prayers get quite short. Lord, help me, right? Lord, help me. This is humble worship. It is the missing element of many people's faith. There is quite a bit of a lack of humility before God uh, at times when coming before him and requesting these things in the true, genuine needs that we have. She is worshiping him. She is exhibiting, as we will see, great faith. Lord, help me. You see, she knows who he is. She knows who he is. And I posit to you that if we're not humble in our hearts before the Lord, we're really not worshiping him. She's humble before him. She's worshiping him. So then the object of her faith is Jesus Christ, as revealed in the word of God. Uh, she's acknowledged her inability and inca- his capability to do it. You need to do it, Lord. I can't. Uh, she's asking for mercy. Uh, her great faith was not quenched by a lack of a response by the living God. It was persistent. Great faith doesn't die off when God doesn't answer. You see? She was persistent. And she was humbly worshiping. 
And now notice, this is another thing about our great faith. Great faith is also not presumptive or offended by God's word. So often we get offended by so much. Our, we live in a society that is offended by everything everywhere, right? Shouldn't be the case with believers. Notice back in verse 25, but she came and began to bow down. That's worship, the same thing before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Interesting statement here. So then, some might think he's not being very kind in what he's saying. Uh, how can God turn away this woman in such terrible, horrible uh, situation? Uh, God's supposed to be merciful, and he's telling her this. Well, God is merciful, but there is a plan and a progression of his plan, as we see in the Word of God. And he's doing something very important here for all of us to see, and certainly for them primarily to see. Now, he says it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And so what he's saying here, he's not, now it's very interesting, we need to remember this, he's not talking about the term dog here. There are two different words for dogs, okay? One word spoke of the wild scavengers, kunan, uh, those who were, uh, you know, rabid and violent dogs roaming all over the place. And that's the word the Jews would call the Gentiles, those rabid, mangy uh, dogs. Um, but here he uses a different word. This word speaks of a domesticated household pet. It spoke of a small dog, a lap dog. Could even be translated puppy. You know, it's it's in terms of a dog, a pet dog, right? And so he's saying here, um, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the pets or the puppies, the dogs. It's not good to give it to them. They're part of the family in a sense, but there's something. There's, there's an order of priority. It's an order of priority. And I would have loved to have seen the expression of the Lord's face when he said this. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the doggies, to the doggies, right? You know, because we know what he's going to do, right? We know what he's going to do. He's a gracious God. He's a good God. He's just teaching. He's explaining. He's helping his disciples. He's helping her. He's helping us understand some very important things. So he deliberately uses a play on words because the Jews would call her a dog. And he doesn't call her that dog. He calls her the other word for dog. You see what I'm saying? It's a deliberate word. And she gets it. She gets it. She understands. Uh, notice he said he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. That's really, we could translate it that way. Mark chapter uh, 7, actually, that's if you turn to Mark chapter 7, 27. Let the children be satisfied first. There's an order. He's speaking of the Jews. It's not good to take from the children's bread and throw it to the dogs or the doggies. Same word. Jesus is simply making the point he came to the Jews first. They are the ones that will be first to receive the benefits of the Messiah, which included healing and deliverance. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that the Gentiles are not going to be included in the offer of salvation. He's just saying the Jews are first. The Jews are first. Now, at this point, she could have gotten really offended how could a merciful God, the son of David, not heal me in this way? How can you be, how can you be prioritize other people? How can you be this way? She could have been offended. How could you show preference? How dare you show favoritism? She could have been very self-righteous. Yet she accepts the reality of Israel's priority and election over the Gentiles, which ultimately will be used in their rejection to bring about salvation to the very Gentiles he is speaking to. Notice she has great faith. Notice what her answer is. Verse 7. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the doggies feed on the crumbs 
which fall from them, their master's table. This is an amazing statement. She doesn't argue with Jesus. She acknowledges the sovereign truth. Yes, Lord, what you say is true. No argument, no offense. But she uses the very illustration that he gives and in that context responds by faith to him. Great faith, as we will see. What you say is true. Um, she acknowledges it. She does not dispute it, that God has a different pers- different purposes for different people groups at different times. He says that. Now, sometimes uh, we can get into this same uh, thing where we can uh, think that we have a right over others for God's action in our lives first. We just trust the Lord and leave it in his hands. He's a good God. He operates according to his timetable and his will and his will. So she says, yes, Lord, even the dogs feed in the crumbs which fall from the master's table. What a wonderful statement. She understands that he, that he doesn't see her as a gentile, unclean Gentile dog, because he didn't say that. that, that he just came to the Jews first and she accepted that. But she continues her persistent petition in a humble, gracious way. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. What amazing faith. What amazing faith. She accepts what God says, and she continues to show a petition there in the context of what Jesus said, not arguing, but persisting in faith. And then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Isn't that wonderful? Mark reveals that, as we saw earlier, she went back to her home. She found the child lying on the bed, the demon having departed. Mark 7, verse 30. Do you want to know what great faith is? We saw it in this woman today. Oh, woman, your faith is megas. It is great. It is great. Now, folks, I don't want to sidetrack on uh, other issues, but... There's a movement in the church these days that tries to protect the sovereignty of God and salvation and tries to remove faith away from the person believing. He says, your faith, your faith is great. She believed the truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ as the Lord and as the Son of David and his ability and her inability thus to save and help her daughter. This woman had great faith. So if you want to know what great faith is, look at what she did. So how about you? How's your faith? What's your faith like? Is it no faith? Is it little faith? Is it growing faith? Is it much faith? Is it great faith? We've seen today that great faith has the right object, the person of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, the great I am, the son of David. And there is a total recognition of one's inability to, to have the request brought about through their own actions. It's impossible. Um, but the one in whom she is coming to, it is possible. She believes he can do that. There is a humble, reverent, persistent that is not presumptive or offended by God's desire and plan as revealed in his word. But there is a response uh, to the word of God and a, and a belief in the God of the Word. Well, some of you today might have realized you don't have faith at all in God. You don't have none of these things. And the reality is you need to see who Christ is truly from the Word of God. 
and you need to believe the truth of what he's declared in his word, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Maybe some of us have realized our faith isn't what it should be, and there are things in the way. We've been offended by our own desires and will, which is in contradiction to God's desires and will. We've been offended by his word in that context then. Or we've quenched, our faith has been quenched because uh, uh, we are not humbly coming before him and seeing him for who he really is, bowing before him. Or maybe we're not think, not totally inadequate. Uh, we need to recognize we're not adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Where's your faith? Well, the only thing that gets in the way of faith is sin. And confess sin and trust in Jesus. Believe in who he is and what he said and trust in him. Persist. Believe in the truth. And you'll see that by his word working in your heart that your faith will grow. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this example of this woman who was persistent, who uh, truly believed, and she had great faith. Lord, may we have great faith. May we be those who believe uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. We know we can't please you apart from faith, but Lord, help us to not have simply a, a little faith. Help us to have great faith, believing everything you've said, understanding the context which you bring it forth, being willing to wait, persisting, and humbly worshiping you. Lord, thank you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.